Pastor Rick, I'll be giving the word to us this morning. I'm glad to be part of the pastoral team here at the Buellton campus, and um, it's an honor to have been part of the church for a couple of years since I retired from full-time, as I guess you would call it, uh, ministry. Uh, nigh on to 40 years I did that. And are you ready for this? The Presbyterian Church. Anybody know what that is? or No. <laughs> There's a lot of us around. In fact, many of you may not know it, but you're Presbyterian, just so you know. Um, but we honor all denominations here at Crossroads. In fact, we don't talk about denominations. Uh, what do we talk about? Do you remember? It's all about Jesus. And one of my favorite parts of the service is the fact that uh, every week Sam reminds us of his call and why he's privileged to be the lead pastor here because he gets to talk about the greatest person who ever lived who's far more than a person but is in fact God in the flesh and that we stress it here on this particular wall. I do want to welcome those of you that are online to the 1045 service here at Buellton. Again, I'm Rick Murray and we are working through Titus. I think uh, Sam did a great job last week getting us ready for that book, um, reminding us of the kind of book it is. It's a short book uh, of Paul written to his friend Titus, who was a partner in the faith, who uh, really had worked with Paul. Particularly, if you read 2 Corinthians, uh, Titus had a big role there helping Paul clean up some of the messes that were part of that early church. And just by the by, I, I always enjoy learning about all the messes that were part of the early church, but because we're, we're kind of always a mess, and God keeps kind of cleaning us up uh, more and more as we uh, seek to be followers of Jesus uh, together. Uh, and again, it's a short book, and it's a, it's a straightforward book, and it can be the kind of book that you sort of, you know, you point fingers and start lecturing people about how to behave. <laughs> um, and, you know, he did mention the fact that mostly we've been in narrative for a full year. We went through John's gospel, and most of us who preach really like preaching the narrative parts of Scripture, and there's narrative in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, and all of it, by the way, does point to Jesus. There are 66 different books inspired by God, written with the power of the Spirit to remind us of the greatest person who ever lived, in fact, God in the flesh, Old and New Testament together. But Titus is one of Paul's letters, and Paul's letters are really reminders for the church to, to start getting it better, and particularly here in the book of Titus. Uh, if uh, you don't have a Bible with you, would you raise your hand? We'd love to give you a Bible to use. There's a guy over there. Um, and if you're a guest with us, that's our gift to you. You can take it home and read it, and every time you read it, you get to learn more and more about Jesus. So we're happy to do that for you. Online, there's also a, a I guess it's a, a connector that you can read the scripture I'm about to read. It is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And if you want to find it, you look at the T's. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, then you got Philemon. And it is true what Sam says, if you start from the right and work your way back, you'll find it quicker. So have you found it? Say amen if you found it. Oh, I like this part. Well, here it is. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and to point elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy or for gain. 
but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, I would ask that the words of this preacher's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our rock and our redeemer. Lord, bless this act of worship known as preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus. There's a lot about this book. Again, you saw already that there's a lot of critique already there. Did you catch the list of what not to do and what to do? And uh, how many of you uh, totally live up to that list perfectly? Even now, do not raise your hand. You're, you'll be lying, right? It's filled with practical advice, of all sorts of practical advice, but mostly related to leadership, uh, the qualities and standards of what it means to lead. And remember, uh, Titus is going to be leading a group of house churches. In those days, churches didn't have buildings at all. They met in homes, and there were people in every home that Titus was to help grow into good leadership. Uh, and what we see in this is that um, this man who's a true partner of Paul is called to kind of put together something for a very new church. Most scholars agree that the churches in Crete were pretty much brand new. Some of the latest that were planted by Paul and then left to others to lead. And it appears to be Titus is the one that's mostly leading it. So it's about gatherings of people, always gatherings of people with a purpose. And there are leadership roles for those people. In fact, there are three words that Paul uses to describe leadership and who leaders are. And the first word is elder. You saw that word, right? And then there's overseer. And then there's steward. Those three all relate together. That first word, elder, is one of my favorites because the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. We get the word Presbyterian from that. And the reason uh, we call them Presbyterian is that the ruling body of those churches are elders. In the Presbyterian church, when I was a pastor, I was called a teaching elder. But there were also elders that helped me guide the church. It was never a solo project. The overseer, by the way, the word for that, episkopos. We get the word bishop from it. What that looks like is we've got some Protestants, we've got some maybe Roman Catholics, or do you remember Episcopalians and Lutherans? Do you know who they are? They're Catholics who flunked Latin back in the day. John Catalano told me that when I was dating his Catholic daughter my first year of college. Uh, you can guess, Maria Teresa Rosa Catalano. Molte bene. She was beautiful. And her dad and I remained friends, remained friends even after we broke up because he was, like me, someone who believed in Jesus Christ that it's all about Jesus, even though he practiced a different version of it in terms of structure. And here's the deal. Whether you have that kind of elder structure or that overseer structure, these three words are related because primarily you are called to be a steward if you're a leader. And that's an important word. In the ancient world, the Judeo, uh, the Greco-Roman culture, the steward was usually a slave who managed the household for the owner of the house. Paul calls himself at the beginning of this letter a slave, literally, doulos, a slave of God. 
If we're a leader in the church, we are really beholden to God. We're his servant, and our job is to lead, not just in the church, but in our families and in our businesses and in our homes. We are called to steward. We get that word stewardship from that, which is a favorite word among Presbyterians. You know, give a lot of your money away, please. That's how we think of it. We'll talk later about that, like at the end of the service. So what is it all about? Well, the major point Paul is making is that leaders need to be above reproach. Whatever style, elder, bishop, steward, above reproach. What does that mean? It means that you behave according to the list that he gave us. You don't do certain things, and you do other things. But did you notice something about the things you don't do and the things that you do do, so to speak? It was not about kind of a checklist. They're all about character. To be a leader is about your character, not your credentials. It's always about your character and not your credentials. There's a temptation to lean on the credentials. It seems more tangible to us that we're educated, that we're prepared, or, or whatever that might mean. Paul says, no, this is about your character, and you must be above reproach with regard to your character. And that's why this is so challenging. I mean, I mentioned to you, uh, you know how many of these you live up to and how many you don't. Nobody lives up to it perfectly, right? And we've got to remind ourselves of that because what we can tend to do in the church is see this list and say, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. I got to do that. But there's a second point I want to make. It's not just about the character and your credentials versus your credentials. What's most important is it's about partnership and not, not about your perfection. Partnership over perfection. You know, we see lists like this in the scripture, and we think, of, well, okay, I'm going to strive for per- perfection. I'm going to check it off. I'm going to get it right. But real life does not work out that way. Years ago, uh, I was in Yakima, Washington. I was in the middle of my ministry at a 14-year stint. That's the longest I've stayed in any one place. My youngest boy teaches middle school, and we're going up to see our brand-new nine-month-old granddaughter pretty soon. I may not come back. She is wonderful. Um, So he grew up there pretty much in Yakima, but we moved from the Bay Area to Yakima, and my oldest boy was 12 at the time. He never really adjusted very well to Yakima. To this day, it's not his favorite place. And I had been uh, reading the list of things required of a leader and realizing, you know, my oldest boy's having some trouble. And it came to a head. What had happened is I was very, very busy. My wife, Kathy, was handling a lot of the stuff with the schools. And basically, my oldest boy wore out four of the five high schools in the Yakima Valley. That's pretty much the only way to say it. He had a truancy problem. Like, he didn't like school, so he figured out a way not to go to school. It finally came to a head where there was going to be a meeting between members of the school board, the principal of the high school he was attending, and a couple of teachers. And my wife said to me, you go to that meeting. I'm done. And I realized, oh. But guess when the meeting was? It was the same night as the meeting of the elder board of that church I was serving. There were 20 of them. There were four other pastors besides me. And I had to tell them I had to give the gavel over to 
an associate pastor to lead this meeting because I needed to go to the school board uh, to kind of figure out what was going to go on with my son. And I thought to myself, I really am a mess. I cannot really be a good leader. But do you know what they did? (laughs) They came around me and they laid hands on me and they prayed for me because they were partners with me in trying to do it right. And even though I didn't totally get it right, they were with me. And I was so grateful for that. I lasted almost seven more years before God moved me somewhere else because it is about partnership, not perfection, ever. None of us makes it to perfection. We never make it to perfection, but we are called to be partners in striving for it and not to give up and trying to get better. And as we say around here, getting better together. It's also not only about character versus credential and, and partnership over perfection. It's also service over self. That same church forced me of my own free will. I like to put it that way to join a service club. And uh, I told the team that wanted me to join when I was interviewing with them, you know, I don't do that. That's sort of Christianity without Jesus, and I really don't want to be involved. He goes, no, every senior pastor of our church has been involved in this club, so I was forced of my own free will to join. The thing is, part of their slogan, and they have a slogan, is service above self. I won't give away the club. But I turned, turned out to be the coolest thing that happened because a bunch of people in the community who weren't going to church went to that club and got to know me and a few others, and pretty soon some of them started going to that church, which was kind of cool. But the reality is that service above self ought to be a slogan for us. Service above self. It's always about service above self, and it's always service inside and outside the walls of the church. You know, I don't know how many of you remember, not many, you're a younger crowd. I'm pushing 70. I remember growing up in the 50s and early 60s and, you know, then on and on. And when I was growing up, I lived on a street where almost everybody went to church. You remember when the American culture was like that? They didn't ask if you went to church. They said, where do you go to church? And I had friends that were Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists and Presbyterians. And they all asked me, where do you go to church? And my dad, he was a cop in that community, a really upright man, but he did not like religion at all. So we didn't go to church. And so some of my little friends, when I'm a little fourth grader, would say, well, you don't go to church, you're going to hell. So I didn't particularly know about church, but I didn't want to go to hell either. But I wasn't sure what that is either. That's how secular my upbringing was. But life wasn't always like that. Um, And it began to change because of the leadership of some lay people in different churches. You see, every church kind of had its own kind of enclave. And everybody kind of went to church. But many, many churches didn't realize that their role was not to be by themselves in a holy huddle, but to be out there in the community. How many of you have ever been or are from Texas besides Asher? Anybody from Texas? Do you know what H-E-B is then in Texas? Is that not the best market in the entire world? We lived in Texas for six years, and what I miss most about Texas is H-E-B. Uh, you, you tell folks about it when they ask, and I will too. It's just a great market. And after we moved here, the prices in H-E-B and the prices here, I don't even want to talk about it because let's just say I took a salary cut to come here to California because of the 
things that cost. The founder of those markets is Herbert E. Butt. He was a Christian leader, a lay person. He started a thing called Laity Lodge in Texas. I had the privilege of speaking there one time. And their whole mission is that we are called to be followers of Jesus, not just inside the walls of churches, but out in the community, in the business world, in the education world, in whatever realm you talk about. He called it Faith at Work. And it caught fire. I think it was one of the things that happened in churches that prepared churches for the next thing that happened. And some of you do remember that. Do you remember the Jesus movement? Anybody? Some of your parents might remember the Jesus movement. It was in the late 60s, early 70s. It was where I came to Christ because it affected many of the local churches in my community who didn't see themselves just as an enclave of holy huddle but wanted to reach out, wanted to do something in the community, wanted people to come into relationship with Jesus, churches that kind of realize what we realize, that it's all about Jesus. And I'm thankful there was a Presbyterian church that was about that. Because I had a, my life and my religion in high school and early college was football, the sport of football. My dad said it kept me out of jail because it taught me discipline. And he may be right about that, but we won't go into detail on that one. But I got injured my first year of college. And it was an injury that took a year to recover. I couldn't really do much for the first three or four months. And then I wasn't ready to play football until the following year. And so during that time, a guy who had been my friend in high school, uh, his name is Carl, he's also a pastor now, by the way, had uh, started going to this church our senior year of high school, and he became our designated driver, and I'm not going to explain that either. And I noticed him, and I liked him, and he liked me, and he kept inviting me to this college group at this Presbyterian church. And you know why I went? Because there were some really cute girls there. I had no high purposes. But they pass out a little Bible, paraphrased Bible, called The Good News for Modern Man. And in that Bible, I met Jesus. The language spoke to me. It was down to earth, simple, straightforward. This is what Jesus is like. This is what he's asking you to do. And so during that season, I kept on kind of entering into this, what is it to be in relationship with Jesus? And finally, I got on my knees with a, a pastor, Presbyterian pastor. That's why I ended up in that realm and ask Jesus to be my Lord. So I'm grateful that churches in the late 60s started seeing service above self in all kinds of ways, not just sharing Christ, but in serving this valley. One of my other favorite things, you know, my wife and I have been attending here for two years, even though I'm part-time staff now. We just love being able to be together and worship because I had 40 years of pastoral ministry where we never went to brunch. <laughs> Some of the churches I served had five services on a Sunday, so there was no brunch for me. So being with my wife at 9 o'clock, by the way, who I met in that college group, um, that's cool. But then I keep getting asked to do stuff like preach. I don't know about that. But I'm doing it. Why? Because I do believe the church has a purpose. We say it every week. The purpose is really to give God glory, to live into that glorious God, but also to be good for this valley, right? And that's really what this teaches us, what people like H-E-B started. But one of the things that needs to happen as we do all of this, one of the things that needs to happen is what I call humility. Now, these are, we all think of them as leadership things. 
and all the lists that, that, that are appropriate of the things to do are really important to do. But when you do them, you've got to have humility. That's why that word in there about arrogance, not to be arrogant. I said at the last hour, both Sam and I were in the service, and I said some pastors um, can be pretty arrogant. And Sam said, amen, because <laughs> he knows what I know. That's easy for us pastors to fall into that. But humility is something we can learn. It's not something that comes naturally to most people. But we can learn it. And sometimes we learn it in interesting places like professional football. LaDainian Tomlinson was a running back for what was once the San Diego Chargers. Do anybody remember Damien? He was also a Texan, by the way, and he was great. He had broken a record. He ran for a seven-yard touchdown against the Denver Broncos. This is back in 2006. And he broke a record, but he didn't get in the end zone and throw the ball down and dance and give the ball to somebody. He went and got all the offensive linemen, you know, the big guys like me who blocked for him, brought them into the end zone and knelt down with them and thanked them. The reporters asked him about it, and here's what he said. When we're old and can't play this game anymore, those are the moments, breaking records, doing great things, uh, that we remember, and be, be, being able to tell our kids and our grandchildren about them. We made history today, and there's no better feeling than to share it with the group of guys in that locker room. It's called a team sport for a reason. Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, ministry's a team sport for a reason. We learn humility together. The thing is, some of you have gone through this message with me so far, and you've heard me use the word leadership several, several times, and, and you've said, oh, this isn't for me because I don't plan on being a leader. You don't have to admit who you are. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But I know we're out there. But guess what? In the body of Christ, everyone has something they have to do in leadership, whether it's wife and father, husband, son or daughter, worker. Remember, this is stuff we do at work, too. And in a sense, whether you're a leader or not in the church, as a follower of Jesus, you're there to lead people, even as you serve them. So guess what? Nobody's off the hook with this thing. We're all on the hook. How do we do it? How do we live into a life that's, that has great character, where we don't just brag about our credentials? How do we live into a life where we fully realize what it means to be in a partnership with someone and make life better and not worry about perfection? We're never going to get there. And how do we consistently put service above self? We need a lot of help, don't we? Reopen your Bibles if they're not already open and go to verse 9. He talks about you've got to be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined in verse 8. And this is what we must do. This is what I would call our North Star. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That verse, we've got to be versed, whether we consider ourselves a leader or not, in what the word is, what is true about the word. And, of course, we've got it on the wall. 
What's true is that it's all about Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. And he died for you and me, and he died in our place. And if churches aren't teaching that, guess what? They're not practicing it. That's our North Star. The other part of our North Star is more difficult. we got to rebuke <laughs> those who don't get it done. And here's a mistake some churches make. They do their rebuke in a real public way. That's not really how it was. Remember, these are house churches. So any kind of rebuking has to be personal, smaller group, not the kind of thing you've seen from time to time where somebody gets on a platform and cries like crazy and says, I've repented, I'll repent, and there's a thousand people in the thing, and you wonder what the heck's going on. That's not how you rebuke and restore someone. But both of those things happen. They're our North Star, our ability to do that, to tell the truth in love to one another, and to be fully guided and led by the true word of God. All 66 of those books in that Bible have something to say to us about who Jesus is and who we are and what we're called to do and who we're called to be. I talked a lot about Yakima today, but it's the longest place I've lived in, right? And it's where I bought my first, and I got to stand for this because my back's kind of bother me. See what happens when you start pushing 70? I bought my first what I call big boy car. It was a, a 2005, are you ready for this? Ford 500, deep, beautiful blue, almost brand new. And I got it at a discount from one of the dealers in my church. And it had all-wheel drive. In Yakima, that's important because it snows in Yakima. And you got to go over the pass and all-wheel drive. And it drove like, oh, my gosh, it was awesome. I loved it. Thing was, it had some new technology in 2005. You know, it had a screen that kind of told me a couple of things, right? Now, today, I, we've got a different car. We actually took that same 2005 Ford 500 and traded it in for another car. And this car that we drive now... Its dashboard talks to me in a woman's voice and tells me where to go. It's incredible. And I just ask it. I say, how do I get to? And I get directions. And I'm thinking, this is a miracle. Pretty soon they're going to beam me up like Scotty gets beamed up in Star Trek. Technology is amazing to me. And I've never been good at using it, including this time I'm telling you about. I'm driving in my car that I love very much. And I turn the windshield wiper on because it's starting to rain, but I missed it, and I hit another knob, and all of a sudden I get this message on the screen that says, drive 360. Drive 360? What does that mean? Well, that car had a compass, and it could tell me whether I was going north, south, east, west, or southwest, and it would be accurate, but when you mess up like I did, all of a sudden you've got to recalibrate it, so you've got to drive around slowly in a circle in a parking lot. Anybody had to do this before? I had to figure that out while I'm driving. But that car, in terms of direction, had that North Star. That verse 9 is our North Star. We cling to the Word of God and to who Jesus really is. He really did live. He really did die on a cross for us. He really did rise from the grave. And He really will come again. And when He comes again... Everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be new. But meanwhile, he calls the likes of you and me 
to make a difference where we live, to make life better for those around us. And he promises to empower us to do that. That's what we're going to continue to be dealing with. Not just a list of what we do and what we don't do, but who we are and who we're called to be. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Great and majestic God, this is a, a challenging book in many ways as it makes it really clear what it means for us to be your followers. And I would ask that you'd help us to cling to the North Star of our relationship with you, that every time we gather here, we can be even more encouraged and empowered to be the people you're calling us to be uh, in the world around us. I thank you, Lord, for this powerful truth that we are your people and we can be your people in every setting we're called to be in. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you will empower us to make a difference around this valley and right here in this church. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.